So it's not uh, commanding. Uh, it is not directing. It is something that happens. And nations will make their own decisions. Uh, and I think we see that in, in Ukraine. In this episode of the NATO Senior Mentors podcast, we are joined by Lieutenant General retired Jan Brooks, who previously worked as Director General International Military Staff at NATO from 2016 till 2019. He was head of the permanent delegation at NATO and the EU from 2013 till 2016, and he was coordinating commander of the reorganization and restructuring of the Dutch Ministry of Defense. Currently, he is a NATO senior mentor for Joint Strategic Environment and Joint Logistics and Enablement, and a senior mentor at the NATO Defense College for negotiation, mediation, and decision-making exercise in the senior course. Well, good afternoon, General Brooks. We know each other a long time, so I... I assume that I can call you Jan. It's a, it's a real honor to have you here, to have this discussion with you today, as I know that you have a very extensive uh, background in operations, in the military committee, as DGIMS, now a senior mentor, and as, uh, as you are still very actively uh, working on several projects within NATO, you are... Uh, very knowledgeable on the topic. And for that, I would like to start uh, with a question we ask always at the start, and that is when you look at command and control, it means something different for everybody. And so where, what does NATO command and control, what does it mean for you? Okay, uh, Mieta, thank you very much for having me here. And also, uh, Jan, good to see both of you back. I've seen uh, both of you several times in the last years, uh, skirmishing around NATO and trying to to pitch uh, the Command and Control uh, Center of Excellence, which I'm very proud that it is in the Netherlands. So for me, it's a home uh, visit uh, today. And coming back to your question on command and control, what does it mean for me? Um, I've made two, in the the simplest way for me, command is directing um, and control is organizing. So the the control function is listening to what is directed by the commander uh, that gives his direction and the commander receiving the direction and both staffs have, in my view, then the responsibility uh, through organizing uh, what has been directed to make sure that the things that are directed are happening. And at the NATO level, um, and you also have an extensive background in logistics, uh, is there something like uh, logistic command and control? No, I'm very clear on this. Uh, at the, uh, logistics command and control only exists at the national level. As long as in the logistics domain, um, the primary players are the nations. And uh, when we take the statement that lo- logistics is a national responsibility, then basically uh, at the NATO level, uh, within NATO, within the NATO command structure, uh, logistics command and control is non-existent. Yeah, also to me, warm welcome uh, to you. Thanks uh, for participating. Uh, And I would like to continue on that uh, logistic uh, command and control because uh, according NATO's principles and policies for logistics, you have uh, standardization, cooperation, multinationality in logistics, robust logistics uh, with command and control, built together the base for flexible and efficient use of logistic support. And thereby... I mean, contributing to the operation success. You all highlighted a little bit on the on the national that logistics C2 is a national responsibility, but are there also other challenges related to the C2 of logistics? Yeah, I would think when you listen to your summing up of these uh, responsibilities and principles, you know, um, in my view, keeping um, logistics as a national responsibility is uh, basically contradicting one of the main tenets of logistics, and that is uh, effective uh, uh, logistics to support the mission. 
by stovepiping in national uh, stovepipes, you almost certainly uh, exclude efficiency and effectiveness in supporting the fight. So I feel that uh, uh, we're on a journey, I have to admit, uh, with the new uh, military committee document uh, 319-4, which is um, describing the principles for logistics, we, are, we have come away a bit from national responsibility and we talk about uh, collaborative responsibility. Uh, we talk about the multinational approaches. Um, and so it's a first step. Uh, and as you always see in NATO, we always have to take the first step and processes go slow. So the direction of travel, in my view, is the appropriate direction, but we're not there yet. I think multinationality in the long run um, having common contracts, using NSPA uh, in, uh, in, an, in an approach. That's the long run where I can see this development. So we need time, but the direction of travel is, is the appropriate one. Yeah, and the, no, thank you for that. And the, the one that triggered me the most, because there's a lot of uh, buzzwords around uh, command and control, like Agile, C2, and it's be flexible. We'll here be mentioning a robust logistics command and control. Uh, what, uh, what f your view do we mean with that? I have no clue. Oh, uh, that's I think it should be uh, a, a robust as this word that we see several times coming back and we knew, use this as an adjective. But I'm, I always have the feeling that we have no clue what we talk about by using this uh, robust. Uh, everything needs to be robust. But what, the, what is it? It needs to be resilient. Uh, we should be able to, to keep cyber out of the uh, impacting. But I have no clue. Uh, robust authorities, that's something that I understand. Authority that allow you to take strong decisions. But robust logistics command and control, I have no clue. Because in my view, logistics command and control at the multinational level does not exist. Yeah, I'd like to l dive a little bit deeper in this uh, in this realm where uh, we look at the national level as well as uh, uh, on the logistics side. Um, because it's also very much when we talk about deterrence and uh, uh, when we look at the military power and we want to show our military power to uh, reach that deterrence, in peace, then, that's very much challenged by logistic uh, and movement um, constraints. Where do you see uh, the developments uh, with, let's say, our logistic ability to show our force to be able to deter effectively? So what I said earlier, you know, when we talk about... Um logistics, at the moment, it is national responsibility. Uh, the direction of travel is, is the right one, but what we need to look at uh, credibility, if we talk about uh, uh, deterrence, and deterrence only works if it's credible and, vi and if it's visible. And I think this is where, in the current uh, day and age, uh, we need to really um, pay some attention to uh, how to make this work. If you look at what's happening at the moment, we all know that uh, the national industries cannot keep up with the demand uh, signal that comes in, out of Ukraine, but also the demand signal that comes out of the different national um, chains of command to build up the logistics stocks to be uh, sufficient for a fight. And that's transparent to everybody, uh, so including our opponent. And I think if we want to be credible, um, we have to show that we uh, start uh, increasing our uh, production capability, that we can keep up with the demand signal, and that we uh, are serious about building up uh, stocks sufficient to uh, to fight the war. Um, and when, when you talk about deterrence, uh, uh, and when I have these discussions, and we had that last week, in Ulm when I was um, supporting the Status Foxford exercise. Now, if you look at our intelligence people, uh, if they look at Intel, the, the last thing they look for 
uh, when they talk about uh, upcoming actions is the logistics preparations. So deterrence pretty much builds upon sufficient logistic preparations. Uh, and so we should use, um, if we have built up our stocks, if we have sufficient capabilities, you could also use your logistics to send the deterrence message instead of building up combat power uh, at, at the border of a, a eventual opponent. Yeah, maybe a follow-up on that. Uh, as I know, the Netherlands has been very active uh, in uh, also the EU side of it in uh, uh, mobility, uh, military mobility. And maybe you can explain where this uh, military mobility project is important to also enable uh, our credibility, our logistic cre credibility to be able to deter. Mieta, thank you very much for pointing out that role of the European Union because uh, uh, we talk, we approach this this uh, command and control discussion from the NATO perspective, but of course the European Union is is very important in this because they um, can provide some of the uh, uh, groundwork that we need when we talk military mobility, the project you were pointing at. We talk uh, about uh, moving forces to the place of need across the continent of Europe, uh, where we have nations with different regulations, uh, but also uh, over the last years uh, uh, that we have, um, the infrastructure is not uh, strong enough to, to carry, for instance, main battle tanks on uh, heavy equipment transporters, whilst in the past these things had all been standardized and were ready uh, for receiving forces. But if you take a, an Abrams uh, uh, main battle tank at the moment uh, on a, a U.S. heavy equipment transporter, then it's not allowed to travel over the European roads because it is designed, these U.S. heavy equipment transporters and the Abrams tanks, they, they can move in the United States, they can move in, in Kuwait, uh, but they're not used to move over European roads. So it's about the infrastructure being ready But it's also about uh, uh, diplomatic clearances in moving uh, across borders and lengthy customs procedures. Uh, and um, But moreover, I, I also think we need to uh, realize that when we talk military mobility, it is not only road movements. We talk about rail movements, we saw waterway movements, and through the air as well. You know, a congested Uh, airspace in, in peacetime, if we want to deploy the VGTF uh, through the air, we need to make sure that uh, we can get way in order to move in that brigade as fast as, as it needs to be. So Europe plays an important role. Uh, money plays a role there, but also uh, harmonizing and synchronizing uh, uh, approaches. And the, the spine, the backbone of this um, A military mobility network that also NATO needs through uh, JSEC as a reinforcement and sustainment network. The European backbone for this is the European uh, network system that has been uh, developed by the European Commission and the nations. And when we talk C2, who is in the lead for this national military mobility plans, for instance, in the Netherlands? or So... It, it, Different, difficult questions and different answers. Um, when NATO came up initially with the uh, requirements, we sent, uh, the Secretary General sent a letter to all the nations asking them for a single point of contact. A single point of contact uh, that could be approached by NATO and the European Union uh, to look towards uh, the infrastructure. Um, because we realize that it's not the ministries of defense that own the national infrastructure. Some nations have a separate uh, ministry for infrastructure. Uh, some nations have the responsibility sitting with the ministry for interior. Uh, so there are different uh, approaches to this. And I think in the Netherlands, at the, where we are at the moment, is that the uh, uh, director of operations that sits in the MOD uh, in The Hague has a, uh, um, one of their subordinate commands is the Territorial Operations Center. Uh, and I think they, in wartime, would be running this infrastructure uh, on behalf of, of the MOD and the government. And I have one follow-up 
question on that, uh, as we are now talking a little bit on this national level uh, part. Uh, recently, Deputy Sarkeur, uh, Admiral Blond, um, he spoke at the NATO Industry Forum, and he pointed out that our ability to sustain forces in terms of maintenance and logistics is one of the first things we should be focusing on. Uh, when uh, we look at that, what is needed for that today in our military national defense plans? What would you see that is needed to have that focus today on the logistics and maintenance side of our forces? If you would take this question in more generic terms, you know, um, so far and based upon the experience from the last um, centuries when we did out of area operations, our uh, logistics system is, uh, is more or less mirroring what we saw on the civilian side, and it's all based upon uh, just in time. But I would like to see a military logistics system that's uh, based upon just in case. Uh, I do not want to wait. Uh, I need to have uh, a maintenance personnel available. I need to have stocks available uh, when I turn around. Because just in time, uh, in my view, in operations where you're running with the fog of war, uh, just in time is uh, always uh, too late. So I would see that we need to build up redundant logistic systems that have uh, a high level of readiness and are available um, and well-trained. Because let's not forget when we talk maintenance, it's getting um, more and more complex with all of the uh, digital equipment that we have now. So um, novel approaches where we're using our military uh, personnel and train them in the civil industries because there they can work with the digital equipment all the time. So this, in my view, a, a future uh, logistics system will be built upon a public um, military cooperation system where we mutually support each other and where we train our uh, soldiers um, uh, with civil industries. So there's a long way to go, but this is the only way forward that I see. Yeah, we just uh, mentioned the importance of the uh, EU, and if you then look at the EU and the, and the counterpart for uh, NATO, then we also have to look at uh, NATO headquarters, then, of course. Uh, you have been the Director General of the International Military Staff at uh, NATO headquarters. Uh, what are your um, experiences in the, related to decision-making at uh, the NATO headquarters uh, level? So decision-making in NATO headquarters is, is lengthy uh, because it's a consensus-based organization. Uh, but at the same time, if and when required, it can be also very fast. But the important thing, uh, if they want to make it fast, is uh, the political will based upon a common understanding of a problem. And that's basically NATO HQ. Um, and so... Sometimes you would hear people overhear people saying, you know, uh, the decision making in NATO is will be always too late. I don't agree necessarily uh, with, with that approach because I feel that if and when required, NATO is able to make decisions uh, uh, fast at the speed of relevance, uh, whilst also at the moment uh, considering what levels of authority should be given to the military commander, in this case, Sarkeur. Uh, in order to be able to react uh, uh, or preempt uh, uh, a certain deterrent effects from, from our opponent. Where I think uh, things are lacking is um, linking the NATO exercise and training program that sits within the NATO command structure with the decision-making exercise that's happening at NATO SQ, the crisis management exercise. At the moment, they are two separate entities. Uh, and I miserably failed as DGIMS uh, uh, because I uh, twice uh, had an attempt to link the NATO uh, command structure training and exercise program with the high-level training uh, and exercise program or the high-level decision-making program happening in, in NATO SQ. Um, I might be an old and gray soldier looking towards this, but in the past we had um, 
exercises, we call them Wintech Cymex. And that was before the wall came down. But they were linked from the national capitals through Brussels HQ, through the whole of the NATO command structure. And actually, the, the credibility that came from that decision-making um, exercise, which was a, a two-year cycle, I think we need to bring back, uh, so link NATO HQ to the NATO command structure uh, on a, uh, an actual exercise with real names, real operations, uh, and real decisions. Yeah, and that's exactly the the reason why I'm uh, I'm interested uh, in it because you see the developments at um, uh, Shape headquarters uh, being their transition into a warfighting headquarters, finding the way, of course, with uh, Sakur with his ACO commanders to fight the the fight. But what you uh, don't see, and they had a, I think, a really positive, good attempt during uh, the steadfast Jupiter exercise. But what was really a big question mark for me is, okay, this is our own ACO warfighting battle rhythm, but how is it influenced from external, so above Sakur level as in the NATO HQ and the military committee and the decisions that they have to make there, but linked with nations in that speed of relevance and how does it uh, um, influence? So it was especially, I think there's a lot of influence on an ACO battle rhythm from the higher level in Sakur to be able to fight the fight than just looking in from ACO downwards. Is there, can you give any examples in what type of influences from the higher level than Sakur could influence uh, that? Yes, I can give, give, give it a try, but let's first not make a mistake in our thinking. You know, sometimes people think that NATO SQ should also be running on a 24-7 base and that they should have a situation center which is um, watching the development of the fight at the strategic level. I think that would be the biggest mistake we could make because that needs to be sitting and residing in shape at a strategic warfighting HQ. Um, I think what is important is that uh, um, NATO HQ, especially the ambassadors representing the, the governments of the uh, 31 nations, soon to be 32, um, are, are uh, informed what's what's ongoing, that they know what Sarkar's assessment is. But but when we talk at the strategic level, um, we don't talk about following the fight uh, every day. So um, keeping hands off uh, from Brussels is also is going to be a, a, an art. It's going to be difficult. And uh, how far they will keep their hands off is built on only one thing, and that's the trust in the military instrument of power and the trust that they are giving to Sakur. When he's explaining to the council what he aims to do, where the risks are, and what his assessment on mission success is, and he keeps them informed on a regular basis and is transparent on how he does it, um, he might uh, not be called into NATO HQ every now and then to give his per personal uh, uh, assessment uh, through the council. Um, if you if that trust is non-existing or is uh, is not you um, not used in an appropriate way, um, nations will pull the strings much more, uh, and they will keep Sakur. Uh, close to their decision-making in, in the council. So it's a, it's, it's a game of give and take, and the give and take is all about trust. Those are very interesting uh, topics. Uh, where I'd like to dive in a little bit, and perhaps we can do that uh, while referring to the new NATO MDO concept. This has been uh, approved in uh, Vilnius, and it speaks about uh, the coordination of all military activities synchronized with all non-military activities in all instruments of power. And I have a few questions on that. Uh, and uh, it starts uh, with the point you just stepped into, this the role of NATO HQ in the continuum uh, of, uh, of crisis, where you also uh, see where is now this role 
relate, related to the other instruments of power. So sometimes I see that we uh, look at NATO HQ and see that as a political level partly where all instruments of power are coordinated within NATO. Whereas you could also say, well, no, NATO is the military instrument of power. And the uh, coordination and synchronization with other instruments of power takes place somewhere else. Uh, and probably at national levels uh, or perhaps in the European Union or at another state. Where do you see this? Where do you see this synchronization with our actions in other instruments of power? So it depends a bit on um, where we are in, in the process. Um, you know, if you... NATO HQ has some instruments where they uh, uh, can have an impact on um, uh, what the military instrument of power does. You know, if NATO... At the start of a process, and, and of course, when we talk out of five, we've done this and we are beyond that point. But when uh, NATO defines its end state uh, from a political level, uh, they will define that end state from a NATO perspective. Then Sakur will start his planning and see how we, through the military instrument of power, could achieve that end state. But at the same time, he would identify how the other instruments of power through non-military activities could support the um, uh, achievement of the NATO end state in a military instrument of power. And uh, if Sarkozy indi indicates that in a synchronization at a strategic level, uh, NATO then is Q should then reach out to the other uh, um, providers of instruments of power. And uh, some of them are nations, uh, and not all... Uh, some is the European Union that can play a role, and I think in the Ukraine conflict we've seen a perfect harmonization of uh, EU approaches and NATO military approaches. Um, but the point that I'm trying to make above the level of soccer, um nations, uh, institutions like to coordinate, but they do not like to be coordinated. So uh, it's more or less a self-synchronization or self-coordination attempt where you have to bring up, this is NATO's approach, and then they would then organize and coordinate against that approach. Um, so it's not uh, commanding. Uh, it is not directing. It is something that happens. And nations will make their own decisions. Uh, and I think we see that in, in Ukraine. The MDO concept leaves room for that because it actually states that you should get to converging effects. And when we talk about converging effects, you also mentioned just the crisis in Ukraine and also an end state. And if you would look at uh, MDO and you would like to uh, talk about deterrence, because we, won't, we, we obviously don't want to fail, we want to deter today... And you talk about getting uh, to converging effects in all instruments of power with all these nations. Where do you see today, uh, when you're not in the lead, but obviously NATO still has a role perhaps in coordinating, where do you see some form of campaign planning on uh, on what should be the end state, where are we driving to, what is our common effort, how can we bring it together? Where do you see the role of NATO HQ in that? So when you look at uh, NATO HQ and NATO itself, uh, so the NATO uh, nations, the NATO uh, uh, allies, the populations, the end state is, is clear. Um, preventing an attack on NATO happening. And there's NATO is in, is in the lead. And I think we see that in reality with the messaging that Sekgen uh, puts out every time. Um, when we talk about Ukraine, that's different. Um, NATO uh, uses its convening power to get nations around the table. NATO uses uh, uh, all the instruments 
they have available to do a little bit of coordination through the NATO Industry uh, Forum. They look at the Conference of National Armors Directors when we talk about um, preparing the the uh, required stocks. But NATO is not in the lead to everything. The nations are in the lead because NATO is not in fight with with uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine. It's Ukraine supported by the NATO nations and the the sovereign nations. So I make a clear distinction between NATO's end state towards uh, Sakur's area of operations and uh, the NATO allies, where NATO is in the lead, whilst in the other uh, case, NATO is a very uh, strong uh, um, player and they use their convening power, they use their political uh, instrument and the nations use the military instrument to, to support Ukraine. But is there then some kind of coalition of the willing doing some campaign planning? Yeah, you, I, th- I assume that there will be uh, in the the, the, um, the the team that meets on the responsibility of the US uh, every now and then in Ramstein that they are providing something like like a campaign plan. And I would think that would be something uh, comparable to um, 2015, 2016, when we had the global fight against terrorism coordinated by the Americans based on a more or less uh, given campaign plans. I think there is something out there like that. I would like to shift a little bit to your role as a senior mentor uh, with JSEC the Joint Support Enabling Command. And when we look at uh, NATO MDO, uh, it talks about uh, coordinating all military activities and synchronizing non-military activities. Where do you see JSEC's role in MDO? So JSEC is developing its role. From its uh, when NATO, NATO first took the decision on... Uh, a new command, the Joint Support and Enabling Command in 2018 with the NATO Command Structure Adaptation. Initially, it was foreseen to be um, responsible for uh, rear areas and and supporting uh, activities, uh, mainly logistics and enablement. I think we we got away from that because uh, rear areas and taking over responsibility for uh, for nations is no longer something that we are striving for. So JSEC now is in a supporting role to uh, the three Joint Forces Commands, but at the same time also for the um, the uh, the TCCs uh, for the component commands. Uh, so JSEC is is a supporting uh, headquarters um, that uh, allows. Uh, the JFCs and the TCCs to focus on their primary tasks. As I heard uh, one of our um, colleagues last week say in Status Foxtrot, we, the Joint Force Commands, look towards the, the, the front end of the, of the JOA where we uh, will look at the battlegrounds uh, and we hope that somebody in our back takes a responsibility for the logistics, for the sustainment of the forces, for the reinforcement by forces over the uh, European network, and that they uh, deliver these forces or order stocks um, at our back door. So we then get forces uh, that are uh, deployed uh, and that we can then use in, in the fight. And to get these forces there and to get the stocks there is a huge uh, uh, coordination effort. It's coordinating with uh, transport services, it's coordinating with nations, it's coordinating across nations, it's coordinating maybe even between the Joint Forces Commands if we go from north to south or from south to north. It's coordinating with the component commands uh, when you're uh, moving, um, you know, uh, supporting stocks for air forces across uh, the JOAS or when uh, we need to bring stocks to um, the maritime uh, forward logistics side. So it is, it's a coordinating effort uh, in order to allow the TCCs and the FCs to do their primary tasks. And are they coordinating primarily with national level uh, enablers? Or are they also coordinating with civil national structures 
in the regions where the joint forces commands uh, are operating. Um, there is a lot of entities where you can coordinate with. Where is their focus? So the, the primary focus, I think, for JSEC will be, um, uh, the, I think the point we mentioned earlier is this primary point of contact that nations would need to establish. But of course, all nations are different. You know, for us in the Netherlands, it might be simple, uh, a small nation uh, with a territorial command that could, could provide that point of contact. But when you're living in Germany with a different lender, uh, who have different responsibilities, it becomes more and more difficult. I think what I don't think will happen quite uh, uh, fast is JSEC engaging with civil companies directly. I think we need a certain level of uh, sovereign nations in, the, in between that negotiates on behalf of, of uh, the alliance uh, um, uh, supporting efforts there. Is that then a role for the NFIUs or do they come in there somewhere? Yeah, so with the NFIUs, uh, uh, we see um, a, lot of, a lot of preparatory work uh, that they do now. But f for JSEC, as the NFIUs are in the, the forward edge of the, of the battlefield, they are much more part of the uh, responsibilities of the Joint Forces Commands and their joint logistics support groups, whilst um, I see more JSEC uh, operating in the European depth um, to make sure that the Joint Force Commands focus forward. I, I just have two follow-up, I think, on that uh, on the same uh, topic, because is it also already with the experience that uh, maybe JSEC already has, that there's some uh, best practices out of the logistic functional service that can serve as a good example for uh, MDO because the MDO concept itself is also in a quest and a search on building those relationships, uh, the right authorities to synchronize. Uh, are there already some out of the yeah. logistic perspective good practices? I think yeah, you're, you're pointing out, Jan, at, at a very good point where uh, not everybody might be prepared to, to accept that. But if you look at the uh, what we said earlier in the logistics domain, there is no command control. So um, you have to um, ask others to provide uh, certain effects for you. And if we look at the MDO concept, uh, um, why did we move away from, from joint to MDO? It's because of these two new domains, space and cyber, where you uh, basically don't control them. You have to um, uh, you have to define what you expect from them to deliver, and then you have to trust that they will deliver in time at the place of need that you have designed. And that's basically what we do in the logistics and enablement domain. We are we are asking others to deliver uh, where we want it to be delivered. And um, you know, but I think if you look at the Netherlands, we've got a perfect uh, example in place. We've got these three uh, mobility corridors um, that that sit uh, across the Netherlands from north to south linked to the harbors. And there will be not a lot of military uh, um, people that you will see be uh, running around to these corridors when they're activated. It's all built upon uh, civilian contracts uh, and uh, an ecosystem of logistics that sits around these three mobility corridors that can be used for the Netherlands. But if another nation deploys through the Netherlands, that same network, the same contracts can be used for them. And I think uh, that approach, uh, not having to have your hands on everything that you need to support your fight, but trusting others uh, based upon um, solidly defined requirements uh, is the, something we can, the, the MDO concept could take away from what we do in the logistics domain already for many, many years. Yeah, so I, I would like to dive a little bit uh, still on the operational level decision-making. And uh, that's probably where the Joint Force Commands are preparing for. And when we look uh, into what's now a real operational level decision, and many people start talking about um, kill chains and seconds, and we say, well, that's tactical level. 
When we talk about operational level, we're talking about uh, priorities, uh, prioritization of scarce resources, uh, lead times uh, to get somewhere. Uh, and and we talk about a lot of logistic uh, terms, you could say. So when we talk about campaign plan on the operational level, where do you, what would you see as a, as a, a perfect example of an operational level decision that typically would come out of uh, the joint force commands for a future conflict. So when we look at this difference between the strategic and the operational level, uh, the strategic level defines uh, what needs to be achieved. Um, and that's a translation of uh, the political objectives into military objectives. Um, uh, and then at the operational level, uh, they are sequencing uh, these uh, objectives in time and effect. Uh, and uh, you were referring to what we do in the logistics domain. You know, we've got this uh, distance, demand, and duration, the three Ds, uh, especially the distance. Um, is something that you need to take into consideration the, the time to 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 deliver, uh, and I think these are the effects that uh, we're looking at the operational level in in time, and I think at the same time, that's um, where the difficulty comes in as well, uh, synchronizing in time. You know, the air tasking order uh, uh, is a seventy-two hour cycle, uh, but when you want to do something in cyber, um, you have to be in the system now. You know. The lead-in time for a cyber effect to uh, to be uh, uh, effective uh, might be in peacetime that you need to uh, to go into the system. Um, of course, when you control the space as uh, uh, um, the, the space um, systems, you can you can have them delivered on the spot. But before you're in that decision cycle where nations who have assets out in space uh, and that you get them to prioritize what you want them to do, there might be time. So in my view, the most difficult thing at the operational level is to getting the effects synchronized in time at the defined place of need because of the different lead-in times of the five domains. Well, thank you. I think that's really uh, a good way to tap into the next topic as well, a little bit looking at emerging disruptive technologies. And then uh, with that respect, looking at AI. We see that AI and data is now rapidly changing our ability to train and exercise more realistic. We can create a synthetic environment where we can put in all these real constraints and it, it uh, will be very difficult to pretend that you keep shooting uh, with your systems if your, if your supply uh, is after 10 minutes out. So you'll, you'll be able to bring in more realistic data sets that can help uh, exercises to become uh, a lot more realistic, perhaps. Where do you see... Uh, this uh, the, the 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 chances that brings and can you give some examples uh, on things we're already doing with these new technologies on the logistics side, perhaps? Yeah. So when we maybe later, um, I will push it a bit to the right to talk about the examples because um, one thing that always sits on my mind when we talk about uh, artificial intelligence, big data, the data availability is uh, that I think our, our biggest challenge is uh, educating our military commanders uh, to work with it. Uh, this computer bias thing where we some, somehow um, are not used to working with the systems um, and ask the wrong questions to the systems, whilst at the same time uh, the, the system might, use, might support you in your decision-making, might offer you a possible decisions and don't trust it. This whole idea we need to we, I think we need to train uh, our uh, military leaders um, to do so um, as part of my other activities I've been uh, in the um, 
International Advisory Council for the Dutch government who have been looking at uh, autonomous weapon systems. Uh, and uh, to allow uh, leaders to leave certain decisions to see um, my autonomous weapon systems is something we really need to learn how to, to trust these systems and that they provide them. Um, and provide them with, with the additional guidance. So that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges. Of course, in the examples, um, autonomous vehicles, uh, truck platooning, uh, in our domain, in the logistics domain, is something, uh, it's out there, it's happening. You know, I know that a few years ago in with Scania and Zwolle, we had already uh, autonomous vehicles on the Dutch highway at rush hour. Uh, and I'm aware of a, of a project that's coming where we will um, have uh, uh, ACT bringing up a project where we uh, might see uh, truck platooning and autonomous vehicles uh, traveling from um, west to east on the Netherlands highways um, in order to support in the long run the fight. Because what we see in Europe is, and it's not only it's a possibility, we can do it already, but there's also a necessity. You know, there's a big lack of uh, truck drivers in, in, in the future um, and already happening in the Netherlands. So these things are developed by on the civilian side and the, uh, the military application we really need to think about. But I mentioned earlier uh, autonomous weapon systems and, of course, uh, the, the Alliance will never, ever uh, accept fully autonomous weapon system that we will send out, switch on, and we're not able to influence anymore. But at the same time, uh, you're short of that. And uh, deliberately, I use very short of that. Uh, we should have these um, senior autonomous weapon systems because it will help us uh, outmaneuvering an opponent in time, react in time, uh, but also do work where we uh, as soldiers cannot cannot come. So the developments are going fast at the moment and we should keep pace to, uh, with them. Uh, not only uh, because we need to develop the technical requirements or we need to train our personnel, but also linked to that are uh, ethical considerations. And at the moment we don't know uh, what we don't know. Um, and you have to adapt your ethical model through experimenting with uh, autonomous weapon system, with artificial intelligence, so that you can build upon this. Uh, otherwise, you will always be on a, on a back foot. Thank you for pointing out uh, the decision-making uh, part and how fast it's changing and the, the discussions that are very much needed on that. We will have a seminar on that uh, shortly. Um, looking, tapping into all these aspects a little bit. Yeah, and I think it's also uh, very uh, already well addressed because you're uh, mentioning the the factor time, I think, a lot. And, and all those emerging disruptive technologies is also a part of a big chapter in, uh, I think it was the NATO 2030 document, uh, same as in the MDO, looking at a roadmap at, at to 2030. And if we look at that timeline, what in your experiences is uh, should be the special focus on especially for us interested on the command and control aspects in that timeline i think first and for, foremost is the the decision support uh, um, uh, tools that that come with it um, and decision decision support could could even go that far that you have uh, that you run quick simulations in order to support your decision, whether you uh, talk about uh, collateral damage, but also as, as I think Mieta was mentioning earlier, you know, uh, battle decisive ammunition. Um, uh, if you look at what we do developing now, we, um, if you don't have consumption rates on your battle decisive ammunition, everybody will use the most expensive ammunition uh, early in the fight whilst it might not be uh, needed to get uh, to hit a target and and you could you could do a simulation um, to the, the in your uh, targeting cycle to see what kind of ammunition you would need uh, otherwise um, you know we've seen this I think now in Ukraine using uh, Patriot uh, uh, rockets to shoot down uh, of uh, a few uh, hundred thousands of euros of even maybe a million 
to shoot down a drone of 20,000 euros. You know, this doesn't match anymore. And I think these elements uh, will, will have uh, opportunities in the future. But there are more elements. But m most, for me, the most important thing is the, the decision support uh, tools that come with it. Well, I think uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's it's very close to uh, my heart as well. The topics we've been discussing uh, to get some realistic logistics in it and get our logistic credibility higher, but also the decision making that comes with it and the changes that come with this um, enablement uh, that we need to now develop. You've been. Uh, fantastic. Thank you very much for all the insights you've given on these, uh, uh, these difficult topics and the topics that you have been uh, working on so hard in the, in the past years. Going from uh, just in case, uh, in, uh, going towards just in case instead of just in time, I think that's uh, maybe a good point uh, to leave. Is there anything you'd like to uh, mention here that we haven't been discussing? No, it's it's an add-on, I think, to my latest uh, um, answer that I gave to Jan's question about um, uh, the supporting uh, effort that comes from these erupt, uh, emerging disruptive technologies. Uh, I talked about decision support um, tools, but also uh, when we talk about logistics and enablement, uh, we're in the NATO training and exercise program, it's virtually impossible to have a realistic um, deployments uh, over time uh, in volume uh, that you would need uh, in order to challenge JSEC. Because we would need uh, six to eight weeks in advance of an exercise to start doing the logistics preparation. And I think uh, simulation games uh, will be crucial for uh, NATO's uh, training and exercise program in the logistics domain in order not to frustrate uh, the, the exercises that go uh, a multi-domain, um, but we take them in 10 or 14 days. You know, 10 or 14 days in the logistics domain at a strategic level doesn't exist. Uh, we're too late if you do it in 10, 14 days. So simulation in the logistics and enablement domain um, as, a, as an exercise will be crucial for the future. And we could then run uh, real-life uh, deployments uh, through a simulation. And that, I think that's crucial. So I think we can add that uh, to my latest answer. Thank you very much. Perfect.